Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Debbie Sorensen. Today on New Books in Psychology, I'm talking with Dr. Kelly McGonigal about willpower and what psychology research has to say about making positive changes in your life. Her new book, The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It is truly life-changing. Take a listen. Good morning, Dr. McGonigal. Good morning. Well, thank you so much for being on New Books in Psychology, um, talking to us today about willpower and your wonderful book, The The Willpower Instinct. Um, I can tell you from my own personal experience that this book can be life-changing, and it's really great that it draws on all this fascinating psychology research to help us make some positive changes in our life. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Me too. In fact, I'm looking forward to hearing maybe some stories from you then. Oh, I will share a few. <laughs> I definitely uh, had a, quite a few things come up as I was uh, going through the process of reading this book, so Great. I'm not shy. <laughs> um, so to start, why don't we just talk a little bit about your background? Tell us maybe a little bit about where you grew up and where you went to school and that type of thing. Uh, well, I grew up in a town called Morristown, New Jersey, which uh, about a decade ago was named the best place in America to live, um, which is kind of interesting. It's a, a suburb outside of Philadelphia. And um, both of my parents were teachers, so I grew up with a great passion for learning. Uh, But no one in my family was a scientist. It wasn't until I went to uh, Boston University for undergrad, um, off to study communications. I actually thought I wanted to be uh, a journalist, a writer, um, that I fell in love with the content that I've ended up writing about psychological science. Great. And what what was your focus in in graduate school? Uh, well, I went to Stanford University to study emotion regulation, how it is that people deal with difficult emotions. You know, are you able to regulate anxiety and, and overcome that fear? What do you do with anger when it's really not appropriate to express it? Um, and in my time at Stanford, I got more and more interested in the relationship between the mind and the body, not only um, what's the most effective way to deal with your emotions, but how does an emotion influence your immune system? Uh, what's going on in the brain when you're experiencing an emotion and how does that interact with what's happening in the body? And that kind of dovetailed with what I was doing outside of the laboratory in my own life, exploring things like yoga and meditation to deal with some health issues that I was experiencing. And it was in graduate school that I really got this idea that um, what I was learning about scientifically and what we were doing in the laboratory was really practical, that this was stuff I was sneaking into my own life. You know, before we even published any data, I was thinking, how can I turn this into a strategy to, to help me deal with my own emotions or to deal with my own physical pain? Cool. So that personal touch is kind of drew you in even more probably. Yeah, although I think, I I mean, you can speak to this too. It always seems as though psychologists end up studying either what they want to understand about their family or uh, what they want to help themselves with. seems like Mm -hmm. we're always always drawn to our own experience. Uh, Yes, I agree, absolutely. And what are you doing nowadays? 
Uh, so right now I have an interesting appointment at Stanford University. I am a lecturer and instructor for several different departments, uh, the School of Business and the School of Medicine and continuing studies. So I, I basically uh, teach this kind of science to a wide range of folks who can make good use of it, um, whether it's applying the science to being a good leader in the business world or to being a better healthcare provider. Um, and the research that I do is with the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism. We developed an eight-week class that helps people cultivate compassion and empathy, including self-compassion, which I assume we'll talk a little bit about as it relates to willpower. Um, but we have this eight-week intervention, and for the last couple of years, we've been studying what the effects of training compassion are on your own mental health and happiness. In fact, we just published this week the latest findings showing that, that training compassion and self-compassion uh, increases happiness and reduces depression and improves uh, emotion regulation skills. So, so that's the science that I'm working on these days. That's wonderful. I'm a clinical psychologist, and that's something that I talk about with, with my clients a lot. I'm glad to hear there's there's good data coming out about that. Yeah. And and I understand that you also teach yoga from the research that I did about you. Is that is that true? I do. I, I teach yoga. I teach group fitness. Uh, I, I teach meditation. I basically, you know, like my, what I've ended up doing in my life is if I found something to be really helpful, I end up teaching it because I get passionate about it that I want to share it with other people. Um, so I do on the side uh teach these things and, and actually train other teachers to teach them um, kind of a, a uh, an advocate for um, these practices that really empower people to um, to do things that are good for themselves and to, to kind of relieve their own suffering. Um, I, I'm very drawn to populations where people can end up a little bit desperate in terms of their own suffering and how to manage that, which is actually one of the ways that I stumbled into willpower. Um, I'm very interested in people who who just feel like they are uh, kind of like drowning in things that are very difficult for other people to treat, whether it's pain or addiction or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And what about um, how? Could you tell the story about how you ended up writing this book? Yeah. So the, the willpower instinct is based on a class I teach at Stanford called the Science of Willpower. And that class is offered through continuing study, so it's for the general public rather than for um, you know undergraduates. And that class came about because I was working as a health educator as part of, in addition to, to doing research and, and academic teaching, I was working for the School of Medicine's Health Improvement Program and teaching people how to make healthy choices. You know, this is this is how to incorporate exercise into your life. This is how to include stress management skills in your life. This is how to be healthy. And what I kept hearing from people over and over is they knew how to be healthy, but they didn't believe they could actually make the changes. And uh, it was kind of demoralizing to people to hear these same, you know, suggestions, sleep more, you know, eat healthier, exercise more. Um, because they truly believed that they couldn't do it. And I realized that I needed to have a class on not what to change, but how to change. And, um, you know, I knew from my own experience with the science, there was all of this fascinating research on how people make successful changes and, and what keeps people from pursuing their own goals, including their health goals. So I said, let's just teach a one-off class and I'll invite all the people who told me that, you know, they 
They didn't think they could ever exercise, that they were never going to change. I'll invite them to this class and we'll all look at the science. And it ended up being like the most popular class that continuing studies had ever offered. Um, people started bringing their spouses, people started bringing their children. And I, I realized that this class was really needed and really appreciated. And I think people particularly appreciated being in a room full of other people who were honest about the fact that they struggled with these things. That you could be in a room of very smart, successful people. I mean, it's the Silicon Valley. You know, these are no slackers in this room. But they were saying things like, I have no control around cheese. Or, uh, you know, despite the fact that I'm successful, I'm plagued by self-doubt and insomnia. And people were, were basically admitting to things that most of the time we feel like maybe we're the only ones struggling with this, so we keep it on the inside. And so I think that was probably why the class ended up being so successful. The science is helpful, but also there's this kind of uh, common humanity that comes about when you're in a room with 200 people who are, are there for the same reason you are, that they want to be the best version of themselves, but they're finding it quite difficult. And anyway, so that first class was, uh, gosh, maybe six, five or six years ago now. And after a few rounds of teaching that class, um, I was approached and asked to write the book on it. And uh, that was quite fun. And a lot of the stories in the book are coming from those early classes where people would send me emails and tell me how they were using the science and how they were turning a specific interesting study into a practical strategy uh, to help them make a change. I really loved reading the examples throughout the book. I think there were many. <laughs> I'm sure everyone who reads the book has this experience. There were many that I could relate to, um, and it really helped to read. I, I could see what you're saying about people, you know, being so open in the class being helpful because it's sometimes I'd read one I'd say, "Oh yeah, I do that too." I never thought about it that way. What was so fascinating to me about this, and maybe we'll talk about some of the examples in the book. Although I get kind of foggy these days, now that I've taught the class so many more times after um, writing that book, I sometimes even forget what stories are in the book versus have um, have happened to me recently. But um, one of the things that I tried to do with those stories is talk about the the range of people's experiences that can be included under this this notion of willpower. That there are people who are you know dealing with things that are might seem kind of silly, like dealing with temptations around candy, which is actually not that silly, but, you know, some people might dismiss that as being not the most crucial willpower struggle in the world, all the way to, um, for example, the, the story of the woman who was um, caring for her mother, who was in a, an assisted living home and, uh, and was just completely overwhelmed by her own emotions. <laughs> oh, I hear the cat. Yes, yes. Kelly warned uh, warned me earlier that that the cat likes to be involved in interviews. So he he definitely is trying to get my attention. Cats are, cats are a bit like emotions. If you try to suppress <laughs> them, they get louder and stronger. So you definitely need to turn your attention to to things like emotions and even unwanted emotions and cats. That maybe that'll be. Um, a new teaching analogy I can start using to treat your emotions you like um like a needy cat. <laughs> but but as I was saying that just there's this range of, of situations that you could think of as being kind of small willpower challenges all the way up to that some of the most difficult experiences in our lives where you become overwhelmed by inner experiences and outer circumstances that you aren't quite sure you can handle. And it's it's been amazing to me to see that some of the same strategies and some of the same science 
is really speaking to this full range of problems from dealing with an addiction to sweets to to dealing with um, trying to care for an aging parent who is also losing their cognitive function. Yeah, huge range. Um, well, I, you know, I actually, when I started reading the book, I actually read it with my book club first. I was telling you earlier um, and was kind of, you know, willpower. I just, I don't really have good associations with the word willpower. I know, and I me thought, either. Oh, it's just going to be a self-help kind of book. And as I'm reading it, I was just, I mean, I was amazed how much I liked it, how helpful it was, how much I started noticing some of these things in my life and, and how much you really draw from the research. I just, I think this is a, a really good book and everybody has some sort of behavior that's problematic or something they should be doing that they're not doing. Yeah, so we should so, talk about what willpower is because I'm like yes, you. Yes, let's start there. I, to me, the word is almost aversive and uh, you know how we ended up with the name willpower is, I, I think I was sitting with... Um, the director for continuing studies and we were talking about titles for the class and I just sort of was one thing, oh, the science of willpower, because, you know, that word willpower is sometimes used in the, in the psychological literature uh, instead of self-regulation, which is, you know, kind of the, the terminology I was used to hearing. And um, willpower, it just sounds like this, like forcing yourself to do something you don't really want to do. And uh, that's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about willpower, what I mean is the ability to make choices that are consistent with your highest goals and values, even when it's difficult, some part of you has a conflicting agenda or goal, uh, or, um, or it's, it's like literally physically uncomfortable. And that in these situations where you experience self-doubt or physical discomfort or inner conflict, that you remember what your goals and your values are, and then you have that strength and you find the motivation and you find the energy to put your attention toward what matters most to you. And when you define willpower in that way, it's really about finding a way to be your best self and live the life that you envision for yourself. And it's no longer the kind of the moralizing willpower or about trying to be someone you aren't, which is how I think a lot of people come to the word willpower. It sounds like someone is trying to force you to do something you don't really want to do. And I would say that of all the kind of the aha moments in the willpower course itself, this is one of those kind of radical rethinking that a lot of people come in with a goal, like to lose weight or to deal with something they've been procrastinating on, like filing old back taxes um, which is surprisingly common in the Silicon Valley. I don't know what that says about our culture. Um, but people come in with these goals and they, they kind of believe that they don't really want to do it. And a big part of the class is excavating the version of them or the part of them who sincerely wants the consequences of making this change and is willing to do the process that will lead to this change. And, I, I, you know, the, we'll have these debates in the class where someone will raise their hand and say, well, you know, I picked doing my physical therapy exercises, but I really don't want to do them. And, you know, we have to have a conversation, like, is that actually true, that this thing you chose, that you're recovering from surgery, you have exercises that will help you be able to walk again, is it really true that you don't want to do the exercises? And who's the, what's the voice in your head that's telling you you don't want to do them? Like, who is that? And what does it feel like when you're in that state of mind? And is that really who you are? And uh, for many people, they've never actually thought about the fact that that isn't who they really are. 
so many people are identified with that little voice of resistance that says, oh, I don't really want to exercise. Uh, I don't, I don't really want to eat healthy. Uh, I don't really want to, you know, do my taxes now. I'm just going to put my head in the sand. They're so identified with that small part of them that uh, a big part of willpower is reconnecting to the part of them who is really a, a much, um, better friend to themselves has a bigger vision for their lives. Yeah, it sounds a lot more appealing when you look at that, that, that <laughs> big picture thing than when it's just another should. You know, like you said, we all know all these things we should be doing, um, but that's that gets us kind of bogged down, I think. Whereas when we look at the big picture, how is this going to help our lives? Then it's there's then there's something there that's we want to work on, and that it's, it comes from oneself that there's autonomy. It's something you endure. You know, I don't. I'm not here to make people be healthy. There's no sort of moral imperative. I'm not in the classroom saying we're all going to develop willpower because you guys are lazy and irresponsible for not exercising right now or for not eating right or for you, you smokers. You, you know, I have a lot of people in this class who are recovering alcoholics or in some other form of recovery. There's no shaming in there saying like this is because you're weak and lazy and stupid and all the other things that maybe they have the voice on the inside or someone else in their life has told them. That's a terrible place to make a change from. It's you get to pick the change. You know, in this class and with the book, I say you get to decide what do you want to put your energy and attention on. And whatever it is, that it, it's valid and worthy because you've chosen it. And it's not about um, what other people in your life think you should change. And it's not about the voice in your head that is critical of some part of you that you think maybe you need to fix. Uh, it's really about what do you want to put your energy and attention on. And you write about a few different forms of willpower, the I will, I won't, and I want. Could you talk about how those different types of willpower are different? These are like the three strengths of willpower. Um, I won't power is the ability to resist temptation or to control some sort of impulse. So when I'm, you know, when I'm, say, thinking uh, some sort of criticism or complaint in my head and I decide not to say it because I don't want to hurt someone's feelings, that's I won't power. When, uh, you know, I see a piece of carrot cake at the, the diner and I'm thinking, oh, I just I want to have another piece of dessert. Uh, if I don't order it because I know that it's not great for my health to have any more cake, that's I won't power. Um, it's really slowing down, pausing, and and saying no to something that you know is eventually go you're going to regret or will conflict with your goals. Uh, people often like that's sort of as far as they go with willpower, saying no, 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 particularly to things that they think they really want. So that's one aspect. Uh, I think people spend less time thinking about I willpower, which is the ability to do something, to say yes to something when part of you is maybe terrified or bored um, or uncomfortable or anxious. I mean, a classic example of I willpower is uh, that they sometimes use in willpower research is to have someone put their their arm in a bucket of ice water and just see how long they can tolerate that distress before they have to say no and stop and, and pull their arm out of the ice water. And if you think of that like being, you know, exercising, being on a treadmill, um, can you keep going even when you first begin to be a little bit tired or your quadriceps start to say, oh, this is hard work, you know, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, can you make a phone call that's uncomfortable because you need to tell someone something that you're, you know, you're nervous about how they're going to react to it? Um, can you even... Or, 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, give, give me your example. Or, for instance, uh, cleaning out a closet that's filled with clutter that totally overwhelms you every time you look at it. I'm just hypothetically. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was one of mine. Yep. Tackling those chores that you that maybe you have a story in your head that it's going to be boring or you have a story in your head that it's going to be overwhelming. A lot of the stuff that we put off is because we have an expectation that the process is going to be unbearable. Which actually is pretty interesting. This is, I, I would say that of the, the two powers we've talked about, I will and I won't, I struggle much more with I will power than I won't power. I'm pretty good at the self-control part. Um, you know, even when I really want something, that's a little bit more natural. I guess I can thank my parents for that, that kind of self-restraint. But the the self-propulsion to do things that, uh, that may make me anxious or that I'm overwhelmed by or that, you know, I think are uncomfortable, maybe there's going to be conflict involved. Uh, I've had to work much more on that. And so part of the thing that that has intrigued me is how often the process is not as bad as the anticipation is. Uh, And and to be able to start to embrace that and recognize that often the biggest discomfort is the discomfort you feel while you're procrastinating, as opposed to the uh, anticipated discomfort of of actually just diving in and, and doing the thing that you've been putting off. So that's that was true with my closet situation too. I mean, I actually haven't completely finished the project yet, but once I started working on it, yeah. I was kind of like, this really isn't that big of a deal. It's probably Why a little bit I, fun, you know? right? Yeah, it kind of was. It felt really good actually to make some progress on it. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that we put off, that is the case for. And mm-hmm. even when it's not, even when it is something that ends up, yeah, this actually really is uncomfortable. I mean, you could think about that with, I also have worked a lot with people who are dealing with medical challenges. And you know what? Like going through medical treatment sometimes is not fun. And it, it basically is uncomfortable. But often it's possible to bring in, uh, you know, a sense of courage and a sense of meaning to things that are uncomfortable so that the actual experience isn't as bad as, as one anticipated or feared. So that's I will power. And then I want power is the thing that nobody ever talks about. And this is the idea that, you know, if you are a human being, you have two different kind of core motivational drives. There is the part of you who's driven to seek uh, short term satisfaction, pleasure, avoid short term pain and discomfort. And that's a very human part of who you are. It's a good survival instinct. And that part of you is always going to want what's easiest or most pleasurable in this moment right now. And there's this whole other motivational drive that is much more expansive. It thinks about your values. It thinks about your long-term goals. It tends to see you in relationship with other people, the people you care about, the community you're a part of that you contribute to. It just has a bigger view of your life. And what that part of you wants tends to be very different than what this kind of survival instinct wants. And uh, when I refer to I want power, what I'm talking about is the ability to, to be in that mindset that thinks about long-term goals and values, that understands uh, the relational aspect of life, that you are in roles that matter to you, that you are in communities that matter to you, and you may need to make choices that can feel a little bit difficult in the moment, but that support those relationships and the people you care about that allow you to contribute in ways that are meaningful to you. And, uh, and that version of you tends to make choices that you end up being very glad that you made and your future self is grateful for. Um, so I want power is the ability to, to be that version of yourself because so much of our environment 
is pulling us to be the other version of ourselves. We have so many temptations in our environment. We have so much stress in our lives that can push us to think in that short-term survival mode. You know, we have advertisements and we have other people's agendas and, and uh, it can be very easy to slip into that much more short-term thinking and end up making choices that seem like a good idea uh, but that we end up regretting. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I found most helpful about the book um, is how, when I read it, I became so much more aware of my thoughts regarding these kinds of things and the choices that I make. And throughout the book, you really emphasize the importance of awareness. Um, could you talk a little bit about why awareness is important in willpower? Yes. Um, so awareness is kind of like the secret ingredient that unlocks I want power. If you think about these two versions of the self that I laid out for you, the sort of the short-term version of you and the long-term expansive version of you, um, you can see that in the brain, systems of the brain that are dominant when you're in either mindset and paying attention, like just literally paying more attention to what's happening in your thoughts, in your body, in your environment, that shifts you into the mindset or the, the brain state that is consistent with all of the strengths of willpower. And it's, it's funny because uh, it, it seems almost like too easy to be true, but actually the more you're paying attention to what's happening, the more your brain is giving you access to I will power, I won't power, and I want power. And so I always start the class by having people train their attention rather than try to change a behavior. So, for example, the first week's assignment in the book or in the class is to pick something that you think you want to change um, and to pay attention to how it's happening without changing it. Like to really get to know it. Um, what are you saying to yourself in your head that allows you to put something off or that gives you permission to do something you end up regretting? You know, what do you feel in your body as you're going through that process? Uh, are there things in your environment that tend to push you to make one decision over another and just kind of get to know how you're doing what you're doing. And in the meantime, start training this quality of attention in other ways. So one of the first exercises in the book is uh, a focus uh, exercise of focusing on the breath. You're, You're literally training your brain how to pay more attention. And that that training of attention is strengthening the willpower systems of the brain. Uh, and I would say that of, of all of the things that give people um, sort of a, an immediate boost in their willpower, it is this process of a willingness to pay attention rather than allowing yourself to go into automatic, uh, the automatic habitual, like I'm not really aware of what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, I'm just doing it. Absolutely. That's how, kind of how I talk to my therapy clients about it a lot of times is that we get into these this autopilot sometimes and I think anything that can increase awareness, there's just this little gap where you make a choice where you could maybe get off of autopilot mode and make a different choice. Yeah, and so let me give you an example. So one of the things that comes up later in class and in the book is called moral licensing. And this is something that most when most people hear it, uh, they immediately recognize it. But they, oh, they, guilty. But they <laughs> never, they they never really realize that they were doing it before. So moral licensing is when you uh, let's say you have a goal. Like I'm, I'll use one of the most common goals in my class, which is to lose weight or be healthy. So let's say that you do something good in the morning. I went for a walk, uh, and you just feel like really good about that. Yeah, I did something that is making progress on my goal. Uh, I deserve a reward. I deserve a treat. 
And so, you know, I go to work and there's maybe birthday cake for a colleague. I can totally have a piece of cake because I went for a walk this morning. And I don't feel any, any ambivalence about that. I feel pretty good about that. But I just made a choice that's inconsistent with my goal. Or one that I'm actually much more guilty of myself is uh, I'm one of those people where if I save money, I feel virtuous about it that I spend more money. Like, you know, send me to a discount department store where things are an extra 50% off. And I'm going to feel so good about myself for being such a great bargain hunter that I'm going to buy things I don't even need. And if my actual goal is to save money, you know, I just did something kind of silly. And most people immediately will recognize some version of this in their own lives where they focus on the virtue of something they've done. And it gives them permission to do something that is fundamentally self-sabotaging. Uh, it, it moves them further away from their goal, um, but it allows I, I, to do it without a sense of regret. Oh, yeah. I, this, I think of all the sections in the book, this was the one that really, for me, completely hit home. And so I here, had no idea I was doing this, but I do it all the time. Give, give me an example. So what's an example for you? So actually... Um, I guess maybe a week or two ago, I went to the gym and I had felt kind of like oh, I wasn't really great about exercising and, um, you know, I was not eating that well, just had a lot going on. And so I expected to have maybe gained a few pounds because well, I really only weigh myself at the gym. I don't have a scale at home. And I got on the scale and I had actually lost a tiny amount of weight. I mean, you know, a pound mm -hmm. or two. <laughs> and I was so happy about that because um, I'm kind of trying to lose a couple of pounds um, that I just picked out. I mean, <laughs> the whole that night, I think I went home and ate popcorn. And then the whole next day, I was like, oh, I have to lost some weight. And I mean, really completely against my goal of losing a few pounds. It's like that study was, in the book, the, the, um, the study that I thought was so hysterical where they bring people in who are dieting. They congratulate them on how much weight they've lost and how much progress they're making on their goal. And then they ask them if they want a chocolate bar. It was something like 85% of people who were congratulated on how well they were doing took a chocolate bar, which doesn't make any sense at all from a, you know, a goal pursuit point of view. But um, from this, this uh, idea of more licensing, you realize people are like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm doing such a good job. I don't need to worry uh -huh. about it right now. Well, and even the language, I think, that I find myself using um, out loud and in my own head, I'll say things like, oh, well, I was really good. Mm -hmm. I ate a salad for lunch. Or, oh, I was bad. I went home and pigged out on tortilla chips. You know, it's the sense of moral good and bad. There's that moralizing implicit in that. So the reason I, I started talking about moral licensing is this is um, in my classes, what I've noticed is this is the thing where when people bring awareness to it, it is harder to fall for it, that the, you are in on the joke. And you may fall for it a little bit, but once you really see it for what it is, it is so much harder to do this on a regular basis. And uh, that's one of the great gifts of awareness. And it might take a few tries. Like you find yourself licensing, and, but then you're like, boy, this is stupid. I'm doing moral licensing right now. Um, it's just harder to fall into that trap. And there's nothing that you need to change. You're just, because you have awareness, you're going to have more insight. Not everything works like that, but that's one where I found that just knowing about it and, and seeing the science and knowing that like everybody does this um, actually gives people more willpower without them having to change anything. Um, but I'm glad that you mentioned the pitfall of, of using moralizing language as well. That's one of the other things that I think really surprised me about the science because like many people, you know, I grew up with a, a healthy uh, dose of, of, you know, moralizing as motivation. I want to be a good person. 
I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to disappoint other people. Um, I want to do the right thing. And then, but when we try to apply that to our own goals, not really ethical decisions like should you, you know, lie and steal and cheat, but things like exercise and, and eating and, and spending our own money, when we start to moralize those things, we turn our goals into tests of our own worthiness. Uh, we, we start to fall into these traps that are really unhelpful. And so a big challenge for many of us is to recognize that we're using language of morals and ethics for something that is better described as simply a goal. It's something you're pursuing because you care about yourself. And from that point of view, it doesn't make any sense to say, Ugh, I'm so bad, I blah, blah, blah today, or I'm, I'm so good. Uh, it's really, um, am I supporting myself or not? Am that seems I seems more compassionate. It is. Yeah. It's compassionate and it's more skillful because when you take that point of view, the research shows that you will use your success to go even further. So when you use moral language, you end up doing things like moral licensing and you give yourself credit for being good and then you look for an excuse to be bad. But when you frame it in terms of going after what though most people will look at a success, they'll say, wow, you know, I... I must be really committed to this goal. I feel so empowered. What else can I do to get there even faster? And the flip side, when you moralize something as being bad, you know, oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm so bad. That guilt seems to really sabotage getting back on track as well. Like it doesn't work either way. When you're good, it motivates you to kind of, uh, you know, do something inconsistent with your goals. But when you feel like you've been bad, it's so demoralizing that most people will end up also giving up on their goals. The whole moralizing thing does not work out very well. So it's a good, really good thing to be aware of. Yeah. Um, so you write that willpower is kind of a limited resource, that we don't necessarily just have unlimited willpower, um, and also that we can train ourselves to have more of it. So could you tell us a little bit about what the research says about what works there, and how do you find that sort of balance between, you know, exercising willpower but not going overboard? Yeah. With it. So um, the idea that willpower is limited is probably one of the biggest ideas to come out of the science in the last decade, but it's referring to a very specific subset of what I think about as willpower. So this is work that comes out of Roy Baumeister's lab, um, and he's done all this research asking people to control something, control their attention by, say, ignoring distractions in a laboratory task or control their emotions by watching a really disgusting video, but not showing on their face the fact that they're completely grossed out. Um, like that sort of thing. Maybe they'll bring in brownies and then say, okay, you're not allowed to eat any, uh, and watch them try to resist the temptation. So he, he creates all these little willpower challenges, and what he's found over and over again in so many different contexts is that when you have to exert willpower in this way, in one setting, you end up kind of running out of strength for another challenge. So if I ask you to resist brownies and then I ask you to put your arm in a bucket of ice water, you're going to be worse at that second task than if I hadn't asked you to resist brownies first. And so, again, it's in these contexts are a little bit artificial and, uh, and almost always divorced from people's actual goals. So the, the resource that seems to be limited is this resource of um, I think self-control is a better way to describe it. Like, I, I just have to right now 
resist this temptation or control this impulse or, or pull out some motivation to do something that's uncomfortable and difficult. And when it's completely divorced from your own goals and values, this does seem to be a very limited resource. It's asking the brain to kind of work overtime to squash impulses and focus attention. And uh, when you're constantly engaged in these like inner battles is a way to think about it, people basically run out of strength. Now, uh, the research suggests, however, that this, this idea that your willpower runs out, that it's, it's a limited resource, um, can be challenged pretty well by people who have a very strong sense of motivation or commitment. Um, so if you, like, if somehow you could see two tasks, resisting a brownie and keeping your hand in a bucket of ice water, if this were the real world and somehow both of those actually supported your goals, uh, you wouldn't necessarily run out of willpower. And I think this is part of the science. You know, the science has gotten picked up a lot by the media that willpower is limited. You'll run out of it. Don't spend it on the wrong things. I think this idea has been a little bit oversold in the, the popular press because I have a lot of people coming and saying, so then, like, I really, I don't want to waste my willpower, so I'm not going to bother doing X, Y, and Z. I'm going to just save it for, you know, one thing that really matters. But I think if you can if you can broaden your understanding of the relationship between these small choices you have to make every day, if you can understand the relationship between them and the things you really care about, um, this inner struggle doesn't require as much resources, either the resources of your brain or the sort of the, the general limited resource of motivation or strength. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That theme came up throughout the book of, almost taking a step back and looking at the big picture from time to time when you're making these choices, that that seems to be a really effective strategy. Yeah, actually, and, and you know what? It's, it's, there's actually a bit of a paradox here. Um, two of the key skills of willpower seem like they're almost the opposite. One is the ability to take a step back and view your life in the big picture, to think, you know, tomorrow, 10 years from now, how is that future self going to feel about what I did today? You know, if I'm putting something off, can I put myself in tomorrow self's shoes and feel the gratitude that I'm going to feel towards today self for getting started on that project? Um, and can I imagine myself 10 years from now and how grateful I'm going to be that I put money in the bank, you know, for my future self? So there's that, that big picture. But at the same time, this other skill we could think of as mindfulness is about really paying attention to what's happening in the present moment that I can sense in my body right now that my skin is crawling because I need a cigarette and I'm willing to feel that. Or what I sense is happening right now is my head is spinning a story about how if I try, I'm going to fail and it's going to be so humiliating that why should I even bother getting started? And I can really feel that, that thought and what that emotion is like in my body and I know it's there and I'm not in denial and I'm not sort of automatically reacting to it. If you can do both at the same time, you are a willpower master because mm -hmm. that's really what's required in our, our most difficult willpower challenges is to be able to, to actually feel what we're feeling and be very aware of what's happening in the present moment that is trying to push us towards a decision that we'll end up regretting and to be able to feel that and sense it and be with it and at the same time hold that that very present moment kind of constricting experience hold it in a point of view and a, a, a quality of attention that is much more expansive and I don't know if that sounds kind of abstract but 
it's trainable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I almost laughed out loud when I read the part about the future self, this bias that we have that we believe, <laughs> you know, that our self next week will have more time, more energy, we'll never do any of these things that we're doing, know. you know, oh, self-sabotaging. That self is such a, a hero. Can't wait until she shows up in my life. Right. But, but Mine is going to get up at 5 a.m. and oh. be so productive. You know, my future self is just great. My, my future self loves exercise. My future self loves mm-hmm. taxes. And actually, finding that um, if you ask people to make predictions about the future, the, the biggest misprediction is that people think they will have more free time in the future. And they, and they don't think, for example, that they'll have more money in the future. There's something about the resource of time that we're kind of stupid about, that we can be as, you know, we can be totally busy and rushed and overwhelmed in the present moment. And we optimistically think next week, next month, next year is going to be just much more relaxed, so much more time. And that's when I'll make this change. That's when I'll prioritize self-care over caring for others. That's when I'll be willing to do something that seems just like too much today. And of course, that rarely is the case unless you're retiring next year, right? For most of us, our lives uh, actually seem to get busier and busier. And the only way that we end up making something feel like a comfortable part of our routine is to insert it into our lives when it feels like we don't have time for it. It's, it's, it's a paradox that is true for almost anything we want to change, that we think our future self is going to have an easier time with it. And so we wait for a time when it is easy. You know, maybe we wait, we're going to um, give up what we're addicted to when we stop having cravings. Well, the only way to actually kill a craving is to resist it when it's still incredibly difficult. That's the only way to teach the brain and the yeah. body not to crave something. Is you have to go through the process of discomfort. And it's the same thing with procrastination. You know, the, only, the only way that things become easy to do is when you go through the process of it being overwhelming, intimidating, uncomfortable, boring, whatever it is first. And too often people are waiting for that experience to change, often inner experiences to change or outer circumstances to change, and then that they will change their behavior in response to that. And most of the time, you actually you just have to commit. I'm going to do it despite the, the cravings, the anxiety, the time pressure. And uh, the world responds to your commitment. And things change because you made a commitment. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, I hear people say sometimes, well, I'm not motivated. And it, there's the sense that, you know, someday in the future, you're going to suddenly be motivated, you know, to go to the gym or something. Well, if you wait around for that to happen, you know, you could be waiting for the rest of your life. That may not ever happen. And this is one of the have to do it. why I, I love the class. And when I wrote the book, because, you know, obviously when you're reading a book on your own, it's not the same experience as being in a room of, we had uh, 250 people in the class this year, where people are, like, you know you are one of many in that class. And, uh, and I try to ha- have this come through in the book as well. I want people to understand that when you look out at the world and you admire people who've done difficult things, we often assume it was easy for them. We, we don't see their inner experience. We don't know how many failures there were first. We don't know that when they wake up in the morning, their first thought is, oh, God, I have to get out of bed. I, I can't tell you how many people have told me that, that the first thing they think when they wake up is they don't want to get out of bed. Really successful, amazing people. In fact, usually when I ask people, you know, what's something that challenged your willpower today? 
I don't know that I've ever not had someone raise their hand and say, getting out of bed in the morning. And I feel like there's something kind of, there's something kind of amazing about people being honest about that, that gives us permission to recognize, okay, I can make a change too, even if it's hard for me to get out of bed in the morning. Like Mm -hmm. that can be true and I can still do amazing things and I can still make a difficult change. So, um, so hopefully that, that comes through in the book and it will help people feel empowered to make a change before their, their, uh, their future self, their heroic future self. <laughs> right. And how do social networks influence behaviors? Um, I thought that was really interesting how these kinds of things can be sort of catching both the bad habits and the, the good ones. Yeah, so from a, a neuroscience point of view, our brains are incredibly social. It seems like our brains have evolved to catch all sorts of things from other people. We can catch their emotional states. So, you know, if you're around somebody who is angry, like how often do you start to get angry too? Or if someone is really sad and depressed, it starts to affect your mood too. We can catch um, people's physical sensations. You know, like there are all sorts of interesting examples of hysteria where somebody comes down with some sort of physical condition and other people start, they, they'll start itching or they'll start yawning or they'll start feeling sick to their stomach as well. And what's been interesting to me as a willpower researcher is how contagious goals are. And it seems as though uh, when you're around other people who have a, a particular goal activated, if you share that goal to any degree at all, it becomes primed in your own brain. So when you're around friends whose goal is to be indulgent, to spend money, or to do things like that, if there's some part of you that kind of wants to do that too, that particular version of you gets activated. It gets uh, That goal gets deeply primed in your brain, and you're going to find any opportunity to pursue that goal more appealing than if you were alone. And the same is true for positive motivations as well, or long-term goals, that when you're around people who have a, a, a big goal uh, and are actually doing things that are difficult, it becomes easier for you to do them because your brain catches that goal and catches that motivation. So it becomes really important to think about both who's influencing you and who you might be influencing. And I think this is a, a great opportunity to recognize that willpower is not this individualistic, you know, I'm, I, I, it's just me. I'm in it alone and I can do it all. That we are constantly being influenced by the people around us. And we also are a source of either inspiration or perhaps temptation and distraction to people we care about. And that's part of the bigger picture is recognizing that we are not actually, you know, these uh, completely agentic individuals who, who exert our autonomy on the world, that we are part of a system of relationships and communities, and we are both creating those as well as being influenced by them. So what suggestions would you have for someone who who finds that they are maybe surrounded by people in their life that they um, that are, mm-hmm. you know, not yeah. Not not according with their own goals. Well, so usually what people, if you take like the addiction recovery model, you'll get some, some extreme answers sometimes like you need to cut off all ties to people who are bad influences on you. But I think that, you know, in some circumstances, that's going to be true, right? If you cannot be around certain people without being offered drugs and you experience cravings for drugs when you even just think about those people, okay, so maybe you need to put some distance between you and, and these people when that's possible. But I think there's a more nuanced way to think about this. 
one thing I always recommend is no matter what your life is like now, maybe you're the only person in your life who wants to quit smoking or wants to save money and get out of debt. Maybe you're the only person you know. So go find somebody else who shares that goal. And if you can find even one ally, and it doesn't even have to be in the real world, you know, maybe, maybe you can find someone at work. Maybe you can find someone in your life who shares that goal, but maybe you do it online. Maybe you, uh, you end up finding, um, online communities. Maybe you even just find books where the main character of the book is going through this, their own hero's journey to make this change. There's so many ways to, to activate that sense of social encouragement and support. And so I always say, start first there, find your tribe or find an ally, even if you have to go outside your everyday life to find that. And then the other thing is to recognize that most people have conflicting goals. So even your friends who seem like they don't share your goal to change, there probably is some part of them that does. For most of the willpower challenges that, that humans struggle with, uh, they are like really classic struggles. And almost anyone in your life is going to share them to some degree, both the desire to do the thing that is not so helpful and the desire to be the version of themselves that is uh, you know, healthier or more, whatever the goal is. And when you know that everyone in your life probably has both versions of them, uh, then you know that you're going to actually be activating the, the positive version of people in your life when you make that commitment to change and to not get so um, depressed about the fact that people in your life don't seem to share your goal. I can't tell you how many of my students, they start off saying, well, I'm the only one in my family who wants to say be a vegetarian. My kids don't want to do it. My husband doesn't want to do it. And I feel like, you know, I have to cook for them. I'm totally stuck. And then over the course of weeks and months, if they start the change on their own without trying to change other people in their lives, it, they often are very contagious and mm-hmm. that other people, when they start to see the positive effects of the change, it becomes activated in them as well. So um, anyways, that was a long way to answer the question about how if it seems like you're alone in your challenge, you should know that you aren't alone. And also that the people in your life, um, if you aren't, if you don't go after them in the way that you can't go after yourself, like you can't say to your loved ones, you have to change now because what you're doing is wrong. You mm-hmm. can't do that with yourself. Well, you can't do that with people in your yeah. life either. That does not work. Um, so if you if you are just simply pursuing your own your own self care and your own goals, you become more contagious, and that's what you want. You want to be like a vector of change. Right. I could imagine that that's sort of satisfying in and of itself to mm-hmm. have that influence. Yeah. So one last kind of topic I wanted to talk about. I thought that your chapter on sort of thought suppression and trying Mm -hmm. to control and change thoughts and emotions was really, really important. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that and this idea of kind of a control versus acceptance? Yes. So um, one of the big the big distinctions in willpower research is between outer behaviors and choices like I won't smoke that cigarette, I won't buy that thing uh, versus inner experiences like, I won't think that, or I won't feel that. And it turns out that our inner experiences, it turns out we have very little I won't power for things like thoughts and feelings, that if you try not to feel something or try not to think something, it almost always backfires. It's called ironic rebound. And uh, there just seems to be this very important distinction between inner experiences and, and outer behaviors. 
And many people try to control their inner world in the same way that we know we, we could control our outer world, um, but our inner world is not controllable in the same way. And so often when we're trying to change behavior, particularly a, a, a won't power challenge, like I'm not going to smoke that, buy that, eat that, drink that, say that, do that, uh, there's a thought or emotion that we believe is pushing us to do that, that, you know, I'm feeling anxious, so I have to smoke, or I'm feeling angry, so I have to yell. I'm feeling physically uncomfortable, so I have to give up. Uh, we, we believe that those inner experiences are driving our behavior with a, an association that is unbreakable. And so we get to work trying to change what we're thinking or feeling. I can't think that way anymore. I can't feel that way anymore. And the more we try to suppress those inner experiences, the stronger they get and the more hooked we get into the behavior itself. So the science is like, is super crystal clear. This, I would say, is the, the most consistent finding that if you have an inner experience that you do not want to have, the only way to transform it is to accept it and actually to put your attention on it. I mentioned before that, I, that I've um, done a lot of work around physical pain, and it's as true for physical pain as it is for emotions like anxiety or anger, that when you turn your attention to the experience itself, this is what sadness feels like. This is what a craving feels like. And you allow yourself to have that inner experience it, it's like it's like a it just makes it less solid and gives you just enough breathing room to make a different choice than what the automatic behavior is. And this is um, one of the things that, again, when I first started teaching this class was very counterintuitive to people that like if you're trying to quit smoking, you should spend time getting to know what your craving feels like. And uh, you don't necessarily need to get rid of your cravings in order to quit smoking. You don't even need to take team replacement therapy. You know, there's research suggesting that people who learn to accept their cravings and ride them out as if they were, you know, just a temporary state of discomfort that does not need to be responded to by smoking, having three times this long-term success rate quitting smoking than people who are given nicotine replacement therapy to try to temporarily get rid of cravings. And you see that type of research with almost every kind of willpower challenge, whether it's food or whether it's emotions or whether it's even for obsessive compulsive disorder, the people who learn to accept their own inner compulsions and thoughts, people with schizophrenia who learn to accept their own delusions and hallucinations end up functioning better than people who are investing a lot of energy in trying to change them or get rid of them. I really like that term urge surfing or surfing the urge mm -hmm. that it's just so descriptive in terms of kind of watching it and sort of letting it pass. I mean, that's really, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing is with inner experiences is when you don't immediately react to them, they often do dissolve on their own. Mm -hmm. And that's a point. Wait 10 minutes, right? That's yeah. one of the strategies in your book. If you're having a really strong urge to do something, kind of tell yourself, okay, I'll do it in 10 minutes. And in that 10 minutes, the urge might, yep. might pass. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, Kelly, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this. Your work is so interesting and this, um, you know, 
such a fascinating topic. And, you know, for for folks who are interested, I really recommend reading the book because there's a lot more where where this comes from in terms of just really helpful strategies and really fascinating research. Um, so anyway, thank you very much. And I'm just wondering what you what are you working on now and what's ahead for you in your future in your work? Well, I'm, I am just now starting my next book, which is going to be on uh, stress and resilience. Um, basically, how to how to get better at handling the difficulties of life and really thriving in face of the life experiences we usually try to avoid. Wow, I'll look forward to reading that <laughs> for sure. And actually, we didn't get to the topic of stress, but that's also covered in this book. It is. So I'll let people pick up your book if they want to learn more, and, and definitely we'll be looking forward to your next book. Great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on New Books in Psychology. It was a pleasure talking with you, you too. Thanks. This is Debbie Sorensen. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Kelly McGonigal about her book, The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. Thank you for listening to New Books in Psychology.